morning, everyone. Um, and welcome to day four of Marathon. And our first event today, a talk by Sir Christopher Trailing on Frankenstein, and then a screening of Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. Um, we're really <coughs> delighted and honoured to have a speaker of Sir Christopher's calibre here. Um, his writing across such diverse subjects, Sergio Leone, Ken Adam, Fu Manchu, Tutankhamun, the Royal College of Art, he's just a, a, an incredibly erudite man, and I think this is going to be a real, mem a really memorable event in Horathon Annals. Um, so to give the talk, and then he, Sir Christopher will take questions, and then we'll have a, like maybe a five-minute comfort break before we begin the film. Sorry, just to let you know that. Um, so to start today's event, please welcome Sir Christopher Freire. Um, the creature 
is a motherless child, it seeps some sort of responsibility from his father or from the scientist for the rest of the story, and uh, Frankenstein is unable to face up to the consequences of what he's done. But that was the moment that we're really celebrating 200 years ago. Here's the title page of the first edition, which came out on New Year's Day, 1818. Three volumes, 72,000 words. Mary Godwin was 18 when she came up with the idea. Uh, uh, she was uh, 19 when she developed it into a full-length novel, and she was 20 when it was published. Uh, New Year's Day, 1818. It doesn't have her name on the title page. It was published anonymously in three volumes. And there's lots of interesting things about the title page. Firstly, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Uh, there were two versions of the Prometheus legend uh, set in ancient times, the Greek version and the Roman version, both of which Lord Byron and Percy Shelley had been talking about that summer of 1816 when the story was first concocted. The Greek version has the young Titan bringing fire down from the heavens, down to earth, and being punished for bringing forbidden knowledge to earth by being chained to a rock and having his vitals gnawed away by lots of crows. Very horrifying kind of scene, actually. Uh, and he's punished for bringing forbidden knowledge down to earth. In the Roman version, it's not fire. The young Titan actually creates a human being out of clay and is punished for this by the gods, by all sorts of uh, outlandish punishments. So in one, it's fire. In one, it's the creation of a human figure. And in both, it's a matter of forbidden knowledge. So the modern Prometheus is an updating of those legends of someone dealing with forbidden knowledge and being punished for it. And then just below is a quotation from Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. Did I request thee, maker from my clay to mold me man? It's Adam speaking to God in the Garden of Eden and saying, I didn't ask to be created. You've, you've, you've created me, you've put me in this situation. Take responsibility. And what I think this means is that Mary Shelley was aware of the fact that she had come up with a new creation myth to challenge that of the Garden of Eden. A creation myth in which it's the scientist that does the creating. You know, in, in the era, era of genetic engineering and the genome project and uh, the kind of biological research that's quite commonplace these days, IVF, three-parent families, animal-human interfaces, all these things in contemporary science, the idea of the scientist as creator is in a way a creation myth for the 21st century. And I think that's one of the reasons why Frankenstein has lasted so well. In fact, the creature uh, in the book uh, turns to Frankenstein at, at one point and says, I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather thy fallen angel. And he wants to be Adam, and he wants the scientist to be God. He wants the scientist to take responsibility, but the scientist won't. And then we go down to the publisher, Lackington Hughes Harding of Finsbury Square, this book had been turned down by several publishers. First of all, they tried John Murray, who was uh, Lord Byron's publisher, and they thought it was too shocking. So they sent it back. And then they tried a publisher called Olia, who was Percy Shelley's publisher, and they figured if, uh, uh, if Olia had published Shelley's quite radical poetry, atheistical poetry, surely they'd cope with this book. It came back by return of post, with Olia saying it gave him nightmares. <laughs> and so, eventually, they ended up with Lackington, a really down-market publisher. And if you look at Lackington's list in 1818, it's full of books like The Prophecies of Merlin, Fulfilled, or Tales of the Dead by Mrs. Utterson. This is an occult bookshop which dealt in what we call today remainders, 
And it was the kind of bookshop that, you know, when you go to a motorway pull-in and there's about five books, it was those books that Blackington published. Um, and it was a huge bookshop in Finsbury Square. Um, in those days, publishers also were bookshops. So you went in one entrance and you had the publisher, and you went in another entrance, you got the bookshop. And it was so large that you could drive a coach and horses through it. And in order to prove this, at the opening of Blackington, they drove a coach and horses through the ground floor so the public relations people could say, you can drive a coach and horses through it. But this was down market. I mean, this, this, was, this was a last resort, and he struck a very hard bargain. Um, Mary Shelley, first-time author, uh, even though with the fam famous-ish name, although Percy Shelley was <coughs> quite well-known by this stage. Um, anyway, she sold the copyright outright, no royalties, just a fee, £42 outright. That was it. That's what she earned out of Frankenstein. So he did drive a very hard bargain and, and, uh, 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 and, and, and so on. So that's, that's all on the title page. If you turn over, it's dedicated to William Godwin, who was Mary Godwin's father, a radical philosopher. In fact, she was the daughter of two of the great public intellectuals of the late 19th century, Mary Wollstonecraft, the founding mother of uh, women's liberation, with the vindication of the rights of women, who died 11 days after giving birth to her, and her father, William Godwin. And by mentioning his name in the dedication, uh, it says uh, to William Godwin, author of Political Justice, these volumes are respectfully inscribed by the author. It meant that the conservative press really dumped on this book. So, because they thought there was some association with Godwin, it was radical, uh, it's just after the Napoleonic Wars. In fact, it's, um, uh, you know, the Buckle of Waterloo is in living memory. And so uh, uh, most of the reviews really condemned this book as a piece of radical trash, basically. It was a mistake to mention William Godwin in the, uh, in the inscription. In most of the books about uh, Mary Shelley, it says that it was an instant bestseller. And it wasn't. It really wasn't. I've done a bit of research on this. Firstly, because it cost 16 shillings and sixpence, which is a lot of money in 1818. It was a very expensive luxury edition. Secondly, they, they printed 500 copies. And if you deduct the copies that the Shelleys wanted to give to their friends, and that the publisher wanted to give to copyright libraries, and also they had a prize of one set for every 10 sets that were sold by the booksellers, they got a free set. If you deduct all those, 457 copies were available to the general public, and they were still being advertised two years later. So they weren't shifting them. So it's a, it's a tiny edition. And a part of my theme is that it wasn't this book that got Frankenstein into the cultural bloodstream. It was something else, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, it, uh, it, it had been published, and uh, quite a lot of people were talking about it. But if you compare that with uh, today, where 200 years later, there have been, it's estimated, 300 editions, 80 stage versions, 120 films, of which we're going to see one a little bit later, 650 comic books, and if you Google the name Frankenstein, more than 60 million Google results. So something's happened between this book that was published in foot with 457 copies available to the public and uh, 200 years later, and that's the story I want to try and tell. It's the story I uh, tried to tell in, in my book, Frankenstein, the first 200 years. I'm convinced it's going to be around in 200 years' time as well. And it was very sweet that when Guillermo del Toro received the BAFTA for the best film with The Shape of Water earlier this year, 
In his speech, he said, it was the teenage Mary Godwin, the teenage Mary Shelley, who inspired him as a teenager to take fantasy seriously, you know, not to be scared of his own imagination. As I say, 18 when she told the story. And, you know, as students read Frankenstein today and struggle to write essays about it at university, she'd written it by then. I mean, it is really quite remarkable. So, um, here we go. This is Mary Godwin in the summer of 1816, that summer in Geneva, when she uh, came up with the idea of Frankenstein. And this is rather a, a sentimental um, painting, a Victorian painting by a man called W.P. Frith. He did Derby Day, and all these huge cinemascope Victorian paintings of crowds at railway stations and things. It's called The Lover's Seat, and it's Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley courting in St Pancras graveyard. Um, they, they, um, they're sitting on the grave, the grave of Mary Wollstonecraft as they courted together. And in fact, Mary, it's a very horrifying story in a way. Uh, Mary Godwin said she learned how to read by tracing the letters of her mother's tomb on Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft's tomb in St Pancras graveyard. Um, uh, in her journal, which she kept religiously from uh, when she was a schoolgirl onwards, uh, Mary Godwin wrote, go to tomb and read. Uh, she was 15 when she met uh, Shelley. And she obviously did a great deal more than read because she ran away with him in the summer of 1814 and in February 1815 she gave birth to her first child. So there was a little bit more than reading going on in the, front, uh, in, in, in the lover's seat. But that's a kind of sentimental version. The, um, so they run away in May 1814 and go to the continent, go to France, through Switzerland, uh, up the Rhine, where they go past a castle called Castle Frankenstein. Uh, and then they come home broke and rather frightened. Uh, William Godwin was very upset by this liaison, even though he'd written a book called Political Justice, which argues for free love and thinks marriage is politically incorrect. When his daughter actually did it, he got very, very upset. He didn't speak to her for two and a half years. But they came back in 1814, and then they ran away again in the summer of 1816. This is the issuing of their passports in uh, Switzerland, uh, which I found in the, um, uh, the archives in, in uh, Geneva, when uh, the top Percy Shelley, the men were the ones issued with the passports. Percy Shelley arrives England in a little house called the, uh, the Maison Chapuis, and they say left on the 17th of August. Actually, he left on the 29th of August, and it's reassuring that the passport people then, as now, always get things wrong. And then underneath, uh, uh, it says that uh, Dr. Lord Byron arrives with his companion, Dr. Polidori, uh, and they stay in a much more upmarket dwelling, the Villa Diodati, um, uh, further up the coast of, uh, from, uh, from Lake Geneva. This is the Villa Diodati today. A less spooky house it would be impossible to imagine. I was hoping this was going to be like the old dark house or something. In fact, I spent two nights in it. And I was slightly hoping that, you know, I sort of get this wonderful... I even had a pen and paper next to the bed in case something happened in the course of the night. But it's a very, very plush, upmarket holiday villa overlooking Lake Geneva. And Byron took it partly because the owners persuaded him that John Milton had stayed there uh, when he came to Geneva. Um, and since Byron loved Paradise Lost, in particular Milton's figure of Satan, uh, he was much taken with the idea he was staying in a villa where Milton had stayed. Actually, it was built 25 years after Milton died. But uh, it was a good sales pitch, and Byron clearly believed it. Um, here we have, at the top right, 
the Diodati, where Byron lived, and roughly where the sail is of the boat was where the Shelleys were, a little house by the lakeside with its own little harbour and uh, a sailing boat to go with it. This is, I was filming in there. Inside. It belongs to a, a Belgian industrialist, and he kindly let us film in there uh, when I did um, something on telly about this. But if you look, this is the room in which the famous ghost story session took place on the night of June the 17th, 1816. And it's completely, you know, in Hollywood, uh, well, we'll see in a minute, it, uh, it, it looks very spooky, high ceilings, big windows, thunder, lightning. It's, it's like a sort of showroom of Regency furniture. It's, it's not spooky at all, but, uh, but never mind. This is, this is where it all happened. And uh, meanwhile, Lord Byron would sit on the veranda watching the appalling weather that summer. It was a famously bad summer in 1816. We now know that um, because there was an eruption of a volcano called Mount Tambora in what is today Indonesia, it played havoc with Western European weather that summer. So it's still snowing in May when they first arrived in Switzerland. Um, the lake has flooded, the rivers have flooded, the harvest is ruined. Uh, the city of Geneva, parts of the streets are underwater. And as Byron says, the cocks kept crowing dawn at lunchtime. It was so dark and there was so much volcanic ash in the atmosphere. But above all, there were these fantastic electric storms over the lake. Really, really spectacular, which Byron wrote about in his poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage. And he, he really enjoyed this idea of extreme weather, which he called sublime. And on one occasion, went out into the lake in his nightshirt to get the whole electric storm experience. And um, they sent out a search party. And he said, yeah, leave me alone. I'm having a wonderful time. Uh, you know, I don't want to be rescued. Anyway, he would sit on the balcony watching this weather. Here's a very unusual print uh, done uh, mid-19th century of both the Byron and Shelley parties together, usually uh, contemporary prints either have Byron or the Shelleys. They very seldom put them together. There's Byron on the back, posing as usual with a guitar. Uh, and uh, there's Shelley uh, at the mast. And uh, the ladies, Mary Shelley, Claire Claremont, her stepsister, and little William. And he's often written out of the story. Mary had a six-month-old baby with her at that time. She, her first baby, a daughter, was born in February 1815, as I say, died a few days later. Then she gave birth to William, who was six months old when she came up with Frankenstein. And when Frankenstein was published, uh, she gave birth to another child five weeks later. In fact, she was almost constantly pregnant from the time she met Shelley to the time Shelley died in the early 1820s. She took four children to term, uh, three of whom died, and she also had a miscarriage. So parenting and the idea of a motherless child and all these things that are within the story of Frankenstein was clearly very important to her. She felt very protective towards little William because of what had happened to her first baby and uh, was very worried that he got a cold or, or um, etc. and who would look after him. Uh, she employed a Geneva nurse called Elise to, to sort of babysit. And, uh, and that's part of the story as well, I think, that this is a print of the Shelley and Byron parties. Here's me trying to reenact what they did. Um, uh, Prince, now, as a result of what happened on the night of June the 17th, and also of Byron's poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, the house became very famous in Victorian times, and lots of prints were produced. But they never said, this was where Mary Shelley told Frankenstein. They always said, where Lord Byron lived. Um, and in fact, um, oh no, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, June the 17th. The weather's terrible, 
the Shelley party had walked up to the Villa Diodati, and so uh, it, the weather's too bad for them to go back that night, so they're going to stay the night. And um, they decide to tell each other lots of nasty stories. And I love this print because it sort of, for me, captures a little bit of the atmosphere. It's by Gilray. It's called Tales of Wonder. And it was produced to celebrate the publication of M.G. Lewis's uh, Tales of Wonder, short stories, Gothic short stories. And if you look at the details, three young ladies uh, reading spooky, it's their own little horathon going on around the table. Uh, they're, they're, if you look at the watch on the waistband of the right hand lady, it's, it, it's 10 to 2, it's well past their bedtime. Uh, there's a rather disapproving governess sitting in the middle. And uh, the decorations are, you know, there's some Gothic decorations up there on the fireplace, a fusely painting on the wall, which was obligatory, you know, for Gothic things. And it was a bit like that, the night of June the 17th. And I don't know if you've read Jane Austen's novel, Northanger Abbey, but there's a very similar scene in it where um, two young girls sit in the pump room in Bath and swap notes about the latest Gothic novels and how horrid they are. And one says, have you read The Castle of Wolfenbach? Wolfenbach, it's really unpleasant. And the other one says, yeah, but have you read The Necromancer of the Black Forest? It's even nastier. And it's just like two people comparing sort of downloads of horror movies today. Uh, <laughs> only it was published in 1818. So that gives an idea. Byron had been to Geneva and had bought this rather cheesy collection of ghost stories called the Phantasmagoriana in a local bookshop. Um, and um, translated from the German, always had to be. <laughs> you know, somehow Gothic novels had to have some connection with Germany. Um, and uh, uh, it's not of much interest, except the introduction is all about a group of people having a family bet of each of them will tell each other a ghost story. And the person who tells the most unpleasant story or the most memorable story will win the prize. And so they're reading that. Why don't we try that? So it was this book that gave them the idea for the ghost story session that night. And of course, Hollywood has produced... <laughs> This is the uh, prologue to James Whale's film, The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, where there have been one or two changes to the Villa Diodati. <laughs> Huge high ceiling, gigantic sash window, polished floor. For some reason, three dogs uh, walking across, uh, led by Una O'Connor in an uncredited role as the chambermaid. And on the right, Percy Shelley, in the middle, Lord Byron. And, um, and there's uh, Mary. And um, it, it's very... Um, it's incredibly cheeky, because Shelley turns to Mary Shelley and says, uh, I do think it's a shame, Mary, to end your story quite so suddenly. And she says, it didn't end there, The Bride of Frankenstein. They're actually suggesting she wrote the sequel, uh, which is cheeky even by Hollywood standards. But the circumstances in which the story was first told are almost as famous, if not more famous, than the story itself. Like a lot of these Gothic stories, there's a kind of creation myth associated with it. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson writing the first version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and it's so nasty, he puts it on the fire, and then writes a second. You know, these are sort of creation myths surrounding these nasty stories. Well, this one, you know, Ken Russell's Gothic, uh, Mary Shelley, the film that was made last year, it's been, it, various people have had a crack at, at this, and um, I, I think the prologue to The Bride of Frankenstein is by far the best. It's, uh, it's both camp and frightening, which is just about right, I think. Um, and there they are saying, tell us another one, Mary. <laughs> Um, now, a couple of nights before, there had been a conversation um, about, uh, 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 well, Mary writes in her journal, uh, principles, whether man is thought to be merely an instrument. 
And there'd been a conversation between Lord Byron, Dr. Polidori, and Mary Godwin about aspects of contemporary science. And there's been a lot of debate about what it was they must have been talking about. And basically, um, it boils down to, they were probably talking about galvanism, which is the application of electric current to dead tissue, and uh, trying, as it were, to bring something back to life. Um, and in fact, um, this is a, a famous book by Luigi Galvani, the man who gave his name to galvanism, 1791, on the movement of muscles, where he tried an experiment with frog's legs, laid the frog's leg, the frog was dead, by the way, <laughs> laid the frog out on a metal plate, uh, got a metal rod and attached it to a voltaic battery, touched the frog's legs and they twitched. And there was a huge debate about what was going on. Was it the electricity that made the frog legs twitch, or was it something inside the frog? Had he brought the frog back to life, in some sense? Um, and um, the... Uh, 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 where are we now? Yes. Yeah. And it wasn't just frogs. Um, there was an experiment in 1803 by uh, um, Galvani's nephew, Giovanni Aldini, who was his champion after Galvani died, where they tried that experiment with a human being. And what's interesting about this is that two friends of William Godwin were in the audience when this experiment took place. 1803, a criminal called Thomas Foster who was a murderer, had been hanged. And the thing is, in the uh, early 19th century, you could be hanged for virtually anything. But what was really nasty was to be hanged, and then your body was used for medical research. So if, if, you, if you were hanged for stealing a sheep, you were just hanged. Not that it made much difference to the victim, but you were just hanged. If you were hanged for murder, the body could be used by anybody. And that made it a particularly unpleasant um, punishment. Anyway, Foster was a murderer. And so his body was rushed off to an operating theatre in London and a huge voltaic battery of 240 metal plates in acid was wired up to him and this is what happened. This is a, a contemporary description, February 1803. On the first application of the process to the face, the jaw of the deceased criminal began to quiver and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted and one eye actually opened. Now, do you remember my description of uh, uh, the creature coming to life at the beginning? One eye actually opened. In the subsequent course of the experiment, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion, and it appeared to all the bystanders that the wretched man was on the point of being restored to life. They honestly believed that if you put enough power, voltaic power, into uh, a corpse, you could bring it back to life. And, um, uh, in fact... Um, a few days later, they, they had a rerun with another murderer, and this time, some of the bystanders got a little bit too close. And according to the description, one of them got punched in the face, because <laughs> he was kind of peering over like this to see what would happen. Uh, anyway, so one of the scientific things they were talking about was galvanism. Another was uh, vivisection. Uh, Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley were both vegetarians. They felt very strongly about animal experiments, and that could well have been part of the science that they were talking about. Amputation. Uh, they'd come through French villages where the residue of Napoleon's Grand Armée, uh, lots of people with limbs missing in, in, in all these French villages, and so amputation was very much uh, on the agenda. And above all, perhaps, a big debate that was going on at the time called the Vitalist Controversy between two professors at the Royal College of Surgeons in London, uh, Dr. Lawrence and Dr. Abernethy, about 
fundamentally, what is it that makes us human? Uh, the vital spark that starts life. Okay, you have conception, and then, according to Dr. Abernethy, at some point, a divine spark goes into each human embryo and brings with it the soul, and that kickstarts human life. According to uh, Lawrence, the man who introduced the word biology into the English language, it's a biological issue. It's got nothing to do with God. The vital spark is just to do with today, the genes we call them. And there's a big, big debate about uh, vitalism, as it was called. What, what is the vital spark that kickstarts life? And it was a very ill-tempered debate, a little bit like Richard Dawkins versus creationism today, angry. You know? um, and uh, Dr. Lawrence, the biology man, was the Shelley's doctor. They knew, they knew all about this debate, so that may have been part of it as well. Now, when the Shelleys went abroad in 1814, they went to Neuchâtel in Switzerland. And in Neuchâtel, and I've got no evidence that they saw these, but I like to think they did, in the town hall were the three most famous automata in late 18th century Europe, artificial human beings. And there was a big craze in the late 18th century for creating... I mean, you talk about artificial intelligence today. In those days, it was clockwork rather than uh, digital. But uh, nevertheless, a big craze for creating human beings. A book had come out called L'Homme Machine, Man as Machine, which argued we're basically meat puppets, that we're machines, that God winds us up, sets us going, and once you've worked out the mechanism, a little bit like mapping the genome, what more is there after you've done the blueprint? What, what more is there to life than the blueprint? So there were a lot of experiments to illustrate this. And three of them were done by the Jacques Droz brothers, who were watchmakers in Neuchâtel in Switzerland. And they produced three famous automata, which are still there. And if ever you go to Switzerland, do go to Neuchâtel and ask the technician to make them work, because they are extraordinary when you see them in operation. This is a draftsman. It's a little boy who sits there at his desk and draws a picture of the Alps. And uh, when, you, when you're standing next to him, um, you're seeing an 18th century mind at work. You're seeing an 18th century person drawing. It is really weird to watch. Anyway, he's the, he's the draftsman. Next to him is a scribe who picks up a goose quill pen, dips it in ink, shakes it to get the ink off it, and starts writing. Now, what does he write? I think, therefore I am. I mean, it's most fantastic joke. I'm talking about AI and all the debates about that. It's all there, you know, basically. Is it possible to create a facsimile of a human being? And the third is uh, a young girl who plays the harpsichord, who's powered by clockwork, and a bellows in her chest, so her chest goes up and down as she's playing, and she really does play. Um, and when I was there, uh, she played beautifully and then started playing some duff notes, and the technician turned to me and said, I think she's tired. <laughs> Let me have a bit. Anyway, that's her hand. So maybe they were talking about automata. Certainly, that, this discussion about principles, whether people are just instruments, could have been about automata, could have been about vitalism, could have been about galvanism. The main thing to say is that romantic poets knew a lot about science in those days. You know, the idea of specialism, science, or humanities, you know, and, and deciding which to specialise in at school was absolutely a thing of the future. In fact, the word scientist wasn't invented until the 1830s. 
Uh, and so they knew a lot. And in fact, um, Shelley had, done a, a, had turned his student rooms at Oxford into a chemistry laboratory. So, you know, they knew a lot about contemporary science. That's the important thing. And on the wall of the Villa Diodati, predictably enough, it doesn't mention Mary. It just mentions that Lord Byron lived here. Uh, uh, English poet, author of The Prisoner of Chillon, lived in the Villa Diodati in 1816 and composed there the third canto of Child Howard. That's it. Nothing else. And um, if you go to Great Marlow, which is the cottage where the Shelleys, which the Shelleys rented, which they, um, from which they published Frankenstein, it says Percy Shelley lived here. And uh, up until a couple of months ago, if you went to Bath, where she wrote the bulk of the novel version of Frankenstein, it didn't have a plaque at all. So Mary was somehow not accepted into the pantheon of history until recently, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. July 1816, um, the two Shelleys with William go up to the Mer de Glace, the French Alps above Chamonix, and visit the Sea of Ice there, where she sets uh, the central volume of Frankenstein, where there's a famous confrontation between the creature and the creator, where the word sympathy is mentioned 35 times, and the creature keeps saying, you know, be a father to me, make me happy, um, create a mate for me, I want a family, um, exercise your responsibilities, you've brought me into the world, you can't just brush out of the door, and it's a famous sort of confrontation, and the scientist has no answer to it, really, and it takes place sort of at the ends of the earth in the sea of ice above Chamonix. By this stage, Mary had decided to turn it into a novel. And I made a bit of a discovery here. The first uh, existing draft is in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, of Frankenstein. This is the bit I read at the beginning. It was on a dreary night in November, you know, the, the, the creation scene. And I noticed when reading it that there are very few crossings out in the creation scene and the bit just afterwards and the bit just before it. But everything else, there's hundreds of crossings out. So clearly she was copying a pre-existing version of the creation scene. So my guess is that it started off as a short story the story she told that night, the, you know, the creation scene, and then she decides to expand it into a three-volume, 72,000-word novel, and so uh, then she starts, it's the first draft after that, but this is clearly a second, you can see, you know, she's copying something with just the odd, you know, uh, uh, attached to that, which is quite interesting, it obviously went through two stages. By the time she went up to the Alps, she decided to turn it into a novel. And so on, uh, oh no, so then, then in August, uh, they leave Geneva and go to Bath and live in uh, 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 number five Abbey Churchyard, which has been remodeled, so it's can't quite tell exactly where it was. But um, that's where she uses the local libraries and um, it decides to expand the novel and, and, and put a story around it, a framing device of an explorer called Robert Walton who goes to the Arctic looking for Magnetic North and the Northwest Passage. And it's a kind of parallel scientific endeavor. Uh, around the story of Frankenstein. And so Frankenstein becomes three autobiographies. The autobiography of Robert Walton, the Arctic explorer, the autobiography of the scientist, and the autobiography of the creature, which makes it fiendishly difficult to adapt, you know, because it's like three interlocking stories. And it's always had, uh, filmmakers and uh, dramatizers have always had great difficulty. And so the book comes out on New Year's Day, 1818. And as I say, very few people read it. 
But then, in 1823, something happens. A play appears in London at the English Opera House called Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein, written by Richard Brinsley Peake. And it's a huge hit. Um, there's been some various changes to the story in the process of adapting it. And those of us who know James Whale's films will recognise some of these changes. Frankenstein develops an assistant called Fritz. And Fritz is comic relief, and he chats to the audience and tells them what's going on. It's alchemy as much as galvanism. So there's a bubbling pot, and some magic out of, out of the pot comes the creature. There's a laboratory at the top of the stairs in a castle. The, the creation scene takes quite a long time, with lots of flashing lights and bubbles and special effects. Whereas in the novel, all she says is, I gathered the instruments of life around me. That's it. That's her entire description of what actually happens in order to get this going. But on the stage, you can't get away with that. So the laboratory scene takes um, several minutes and lots of special effects. Um, and the creature, instead of being very talkative and learning the power of language, just grunts and uses his hands a lot. It's rather poignant, but it's a kind of pantomime performance. Um, and it's a big finish. Uh, uh, in this one, it's an avalanche. And in rival versions, it was Mount Etna going up with the creature falling into a volcano. And in another one, it's a storm at sea. You have to have a big finish as well. But all these things in 1823 had already happened, and they all get transposed into Hollywood a hundred years later. So it is this that starts carrying Frankenstein into the bloodstream. Because the other thing that's happened is it's been turned into a very moral story about a scientist who regrets what he's done, and he's overstepped the bounds of nature, he's going to be punished for it. The novel is not like that at all. The first edition of Frankenstein is very pro-science. First of all, the experiment is a success. It does everything Frankenstein wants it to. Secondly, uh, it's um, a big description of him going to the University of Ingolstadt and his scientific curriculum as a student. The very first novel ever written about the education of a young scientist in great detail. And thirdly, his last words, which everyone forgets at the end of the novel, are, I may have failed, but others will come along and they'll get it right. In other words, he sees the whole thing as a kind of experiment that went a bit wrong, but his, according to the scientific method, you know, uh, if it doesn't work, try again. So he's completely unrepentant in his last words, but in the play, what have I done, what have I done, and he's referred to as mad, he becomes a mad scientist, and the whole thing is called presumption. Now what's amazing is that Mary Shelley went to see this in the summer of 1823, and loved it. And, and the extraordinary thing about, I mean, what's extraordinary about that is there was no intellectual property in those days. It was a free-for-all. You know, you couldn't protect copyright unless you wrote your own play. So she goes to see a play which is absolutely packed, has been running for several months. And instead of, as I would have done, sitting there saying, why in the bloody hell didn't I get a royalty? You know, I could have made some money out of this. Uh, she says, I rather enjoyed it, actually. I like the grunting creature. I found it rather poignant. And, um, uh, and she says in a parody of a famous line from Lord Byron, lo and behold, I woke up famous. Uh, that uh, the novel hadn't done it, but the play certainly did. Uh, this is Thomas Potter Cook, the actor playing the creature. For some reason, in a toga. I've never worked this out. But, uh, the convention was that he wore a toga. And the other convention was it's set in the past. The novel is set in the present, in 1816. But here, they're always in sort of Renaissance or Shakespearean costume, according to the prince. So they set it in sort of alchemy time, rather than in Faust time, as it were.
rather than in the contemporary thing. But Thomas Potter Cook played the part, he claimed, 360 times. And then he played it in Paris at the Paul Saint-Martin Theatre. Mr. Cook, this is uh, the scene where he dispatches Frankenstein's younger brother, William. And, but the great thing was, since he didn't have any lines, he didn't have to learn French. All he had to do was learn the cues and grunt. Um, so he could perform it anywhere, actually. Um, this is Cook in Paris. And this is uh, the first play script of Presumption, which is really fascinating as an illustration. There's a kind of homoerotic element, a rather provocative creature. Uh, which is something that Hollywood hasn't attempted that often. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, again, in sort of Renaissance costume. Um, Thomas, Cook, Thomas Potter Cook's uh, rival was a man called O. Smith, who took over, again in a toga. And um, this, is, this is a real piece of luck. When I was writing the, the, the book, I, 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 um, I happened to have supper with someone who's a theatre historian, who'd been to an auction... Uh, in, in Dorset, in England, and bought this scrapbook of tiny little watercolours. And we couldn't quite work out what it was. But it turns out it was someone who was sitting in the stalls in the 1820s and going to all these plays and doing little watercolours of what was on the stage. And this is the very first colour picture of the creature in Frankenstein. Amazing. He saw O. Smith as Frankenstein in uh, uh, 1824. And this is... And what, um, let me, I just want to read you uh, another quote, if I could, um, because something's happened uh, in the process of adapting it. This is, the, in the novel, the scientist looking at his creation. And if you look at this at the same time. His limbs were in proportion, and I'd selected all his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God, his yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I created, I rushed out of the room. So he's chosen these body parts with great care to make them proportionate. So rather like uh, Leonardo's picture of Vitruvian man, you know, the, the proportion of head to chest to arm to legs and all this, he's perfect. It's just that they don't quite add up. And when you look at him, there's something creepy about him, particularly when you look at his eyes. And maybe his skin is a bit too tight. But he's built like a Chippendale. You know, this guy is, is, is very muscular. And he's eight foot tall. Uh, because uh, Frankenstein says in the novel, I decided to make him a bit bigger to make the experiment easier. And people have argued for a long time about how on earth, if you piece someone together from bits of other people, how does he end up at eight foot? Well, I think I found the answer to that, which is that... Um, uh, he talks about how he haunted graveyards and charnel houses and slaughterhouses. And I think there's a lot of animal inside the creature. And the creature rushes around the Alps like a mountain goat and leaps from rock to rock. And I think he's possibly got, you know, the thigh bone of a mountain goat or something like that. That's why he's eight foot. Uh, I think it's an animal-human experiment. But uh, that's just a sort of private thought which I share with you. It's a horrifying sort of thought. But anyway, the point is that on the stage, he's become a bug-eyed monster. Instead of being this rather subtle thing of a beautiful creature who doesn't quite add up, and because he's rejected, he turns nasty, a much less subtle story comes out, which is he's a grunting monster from the word go. Um, and uh, that, uh, so that picture, I think, confirms it. Um, the play became a cause célèbre, and the Society for the Suppression of Vice and Immorality started producing pamphlets for 
uh, circulating around the stalls. Um, uh, uh, partly because of the association with Shelley, because by now everyone knew it was Mary Shelley, and he was radical. Partly because of the association with Godwin. Actually, it's much more moral than the novel. So they were barking up the wrong tree, but nevertheless, they thought this was, uh, this was nasty stuff. So this started circulating, and, and as always happens, you know, a pamphlet circulates saying, do not take your wives, do not take your children. As a result, it was a huge hit. Everybody <laughs> wanted to see it. In fact, there's a, there's a thing in the papers where they say, they think these might have been printed by the management <laughs> because they created this sort of event which had turned it into a bestseller. They weren't, actually. These are genuine. This was the Society for the Suppression of Vice and Immorality. This was Birmingham, in fact. And this is the follow-up, the bottle in another one of those little watercolours. In real life, they're about that size. Um, uh, which uh, Richard Brinsley Peake put on just afterwards. They're really lovely watercolours. Um, and uh, disappeared at the same theatre, and the young Robert Louis Stevenson went to see it and subsequently wrote a story called The Bottle Imp, based on his memory of seeing this play. And by now, um, Mary Shelley had a very tragic life, really, because all the men who were present that night on June the 17th were dead by now. Byron had died in Greece, famously. Um, uh, Shelley had died, drowned in the Gulf of Spezia from his yacht. Dr. Pomodori may have committed suicide with prussic acid, but he certainly died after a coaching accident. So she said, you know, by the mid-1820s, when she herself is in her early 20s, she felt like an old woman. And she kept going to funerals. And, uh, and the other thing was, she, um, uh, she found it difficult to make ends meet. She wanted to get an allowance from the Shirley family, but they said they'd only give her money if they had custody of her son. And she refuses to give up her son. And so they wouldn't give her an allowance. So she had to live on her wits as a freelance journalist and writing for encyclopedias and so on and so forth. So she brings out Frankenstein again in 1831 in the hope that it's going to be a hit this time. And it's interesting for lots of reasons. The 1831, first of all, it's the first illustrated edition ever. And secondly, she rewrote it as a popular book, cut out a lot of the philosophy and the science, made it much more moral. The word presumption appears several times in the rewritten version. The word mad is applied to Frankenstein on various occasions. And what she's doing is cashing in on the plays. She's rewriting the book in the light of the success of the plays. I'm, I'm completely convinced of that. And it was this that really started selling. They printed 4,020 copies and 3,070 had been sold by the end of 1831. So it's beginning to really move this book. The trouble was that Mr. Bentley, the publisher, hung on to the copyright. So unlike most Gothic stories, there's no, in, in the 19th century, there's no Penny Dreadful versions, there's no yellowback editions, there's no popular editions of Frankenstein at all, because he hung on to the copyright for dear life. And the result is it's not till the very end of the 19th century that you start getting uh, versions of Frankenstein being published. But this is the interesting thing. This is the one illustration of that moment with the young scientist rushing out of the door that we know that Mary Shelley approved of. And it's fascinating. I mean, you know, beautiful. He's, he is. He's built like a Chippendale, this guy. Maybe his eyes are a bit big. <laughs> uh, and he's certainly eight foot tall, at least. But uh, Frankenstein is the young research student taking one look at him and rushing out of the, the room. And um, the artist is a man called Theodore von Holst, who is a protege of Fuseli. And, um, and in fact, an ancestor of Gustav Holtz, the composer. And uh, I found, so I did a little bit of research on Theodor von Holst, and a couple of years before, he'd done an 
engraving of Faust, the first English artist ever to illustrate Faust, Goethe's Faust. And if you look at the window and the library and the skull, he basically recycled it for Frankenstein. <laughs> it's basically the same thing. So he obviously saw it as a Faust story, which it isn't. But the play thought it was. And so he presents it as a Faust story. Okay, so that takes us up to... The, um, oh yes, I should say that by 1826, 15 different versions of Frankenstein are on the stage in London and Paris. 15 different rival versions. And this is a huge hit. But by 1820 standards, this is a blockbuster. And I don't know why it... Well, it, it, um, it, it became a metaphor for any sort of anxiety that people had. So throughout the 19th century, if you look at punch cartoons, uh, people have studied this, uh, the Frankenstein monster stands in for any social anxiety. So the Chartists and strike action by uh, uh, workers uh, is the Frankenstein monster of the working class. Irish nationalism in the mid-19th century, the Frankenstein monster of nationalism. Or, um, uh, or, or, or a big capitalism and the railways. Frankenstein's monster. So it becomes an on-the-shelf expression of people's anxieties about anything that concerned them, punch readers. Um, and it is uh, the plays that obviously do that. And then we get to the 20th century. And here's the rogues gallery of people who played the creature. Uh, top left is Thomas Potter Cook in 1826. 1910, Edison, the first version of Frankenstein, um, thought to be a lost film, was discovered quite recently in a film collector's, a single print in a film collector's collection, and it's now out on DVD. And it's really interesting, because I think it's the nearest you'll get to those theatre versions of the 1820s. It really feels like that when you watch it. You've got the alchemy, you've got the assistant, you've got the creature looking like that illustration I showed you. Um, anyway, that's now available. 1930, a play by Peggy Webling, which was ostensibly what the Karloff version was based on. And then in the middle, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, the three Karloffs, when he very sensibly bowed out because he didn't want to become typecast, uh, he didn't want to play the creature. But Bela Lugosi wasn't quite so sensible, and so he, uh, he ended up sort of thinking he was Dracula, basically. He played it so often, uh, but Karloff bowed out. And then at the bottom, the Karloff makeup, which Universal Studios copyrighted, being used by other actors. And then... Um, 1957, Hammer, the first one in colour, with Christopher Lee. And because Universal had copyrighted the Karloff makeup, they had to think out a different way of depicting the creature. One white eye, lots of scars. Um, top right, I was a teenage Frankenstein. Now, um, it, I, I don't make any claims for this movie. Uh, it, it's a clever idea. It's basically a scientist piecing together a difficult teenager. Yes, hand on. What's the one on the left? I'm not sure. Uh, you thank you for, uh, I missed it out because I couldn't quite remember. I'm not quite sure. Is it Frankenstein's daughter or is it Frankenstein 1980? 57, it's American for sure. I'm not quite sure. It looks like your poster for the horathon actually this year. Um, but uh, I was a teenage, Frankenstein is piecing together uh, a teenager out of bits of teenagers who've died in automobile accidents. And, um, uh, uh, and of course, predictably, this is the uber difficult teenager. Um, and there's a wonderful moment where the scientist turns to the teenager and says, I know you've got a civil tongue in your head. I sewed it there myself. <laughs> it's one of the great lines. It's a terrible movie, but this is one of the great lines, I think. Uh, and then uh, in 73, Christopher Isherwood's version, Frankenstein, The True Story, 
where they edge towards a kind of homoerotic version of it, where the creature can only say one thing, beautiful. And he is beautiful to start with, played by Michael Sarrazin, and slowly decays. Um, uh, it's quite a very interesting version. Bottom left, uh, Young Frankenstein, obviously, a homage to those universal films by Mel Brooks. And um, bottom right, 1994, the big budget Kenneth Branagh version, $45 million, the only Frankenstein film to have been nominated for an Oscar uh, for the makeup. Uh, I didn't get it, but nevertheless, it moved out of the world of late night movies and guilty pleasures into costume drama, expensive costume drama. And the result was nobody went to see it. Uh, it didn't feel like a Frankenstein movie at all. But just to go back over those for a sec, I'm afraid of missing out that one. I, I can't remember, to be honest with you. Uh, the Edison, well worth getting on DVD. Um, here he is as an alchemist creating the creature. Here's the creature, sorry about the quality of the slide, coming through the curtains and being spooky with the scientist. But I think this film, uh, not on the Frankenstein list, is key, and that's Metropolis, 1926, made by Fritz Lang. And for those who know it, it's the skyscraper city in the year 2000, but in the middle of the city, with its pitch roof, is the medieval house of the scientist, Dr. Rockvang, who is the scientist who's the brains behind the, the modern metropolis. And Rockvang wears a medieval jerkin, he has one black glove from some experiment that went wrong, like Dr. Strangelove, of course it's a reference, um, and uh, he has wild hair. And I read a book about Metropolis recently which said it was a caricature of Einstein. And then you look at a photograph of Einstein in 1926, he's a very dapper young man with black curly hair. And uh, I've got a much better thesis, which is Einstein actually modelled his hairdo on Metropolis. <laughs> it was the other way around. Uh, we shall see. Um, but the, the point is, in the middle of Metropolis, this incredible creation scene, where essence of Maria in the foreground is taken out of her and put into the robot Maria. And there's whiz-bangs, electric arcs, uh, a mixture of sort of medieval technology and modern technology. There's a crocodile hanging over the door, but you get all this wonderful electric stuff. And I think that is one of the big influences on the laboratory scene in Frankenstein, 1931. It certainly doesn't come from the novel, and it wasn't as elaborate as that in the plays. Or it might have come from this. This is a postcard of the 1920s of the Serbian-American inventor Nikola Tesla, the man who gave his name to the, or posthumously had his name given to the electric car, and he's trying to prove to the public how alternating current is safe. So he's sitting there while 12 million volts is chucked at him as he sits by a cage reading Goethe's Faust without paying any attention to the sparks that are whizzing past him. Uh, and again, this has a whiff of the creation scene in Frankenstein about it, so maybe there's a reference there. Uh, actually, rather depressingly, they now think this is a composite photo. It's not real. At the time, everyone thought it was real, but the, the, the view now is that it was put together, I'm afraid. Uh, fake news. Sorry about that. Um, this is the laboratory equipment, Kenneth Strickfraden, designed for 1931, where I gathered the instruments of life about me has turned into really something very elaborate. This is the Bride of Frankenstein, um, with again a mixture of modern technology, Bakelite dials, and Regency technology. And one of the curious things about those universal films, I always think, is you don't know what period they're taking place in. That in some of them, you're, you're sort of getting used to the idea this is in the past, and then a telephone rings, or, or a car pulls up outside, and you get this odd dreamlike quality of not quite knowing where you are. Well, the novel, of course, was set virtually in the, in the present day.
And here's the uh, teaser poster for Frankenstein, 1931. The first teaser in the history of the movies, they think, where you put out a poster a few weeks before the film is released, and you don't say where it's on, you don't say what the film is, you don't say who's in it, you just say, warning, the monster is loose, and you fly post it everywhere, and everyone's sort of worried about what's going on, you know, where's the monster? And then comes the real poster, and this is the first teaser, they reckon. It was designed by Karen de Grosch, uh, who was a Hungarian designer who worked for Universal Studios. It's a wonderful poster, I think, and um, if ever you see one, snap it up. And here's Karloff. With all sorts of innovations, obviously scars, obviously a bolt, you should plug him into, obviously a big cranium, because you've taken the top off his head to put a brain in it. Um, and I've often been fascinated by where they got the idea for that makeup. And again, I can't prove it, but in those days, um, you know, they made films in assembly line circumstances in these studios, and they produced what they called the Bible, which was a visual mood piece, which they'd give to the production designer and the cinematographer and the costume designer and say, we want something like that. And some of these Bibles have survived, unfortunately not the one for Frankenstein, but it would be, you know, some postcards, some reproductions of paintings, some uh, Xeroxes of newspaper cuttings and transparencies, and you just give it to the art director and say, you know, do something like that. Well, I suspect that the Bible for Frankenstein contained this, which is an image by Goya uh, from his collection, The Caprices, Caprichas, called The Chinchillas. And if you look bottom left, this is um, a Spanish aristocrat in a lunatic asylum in 1808, and I think that's where they got the makeup for Karloff. I mean, it's a huge coincidence. It looks exactly like him. But I can't prove it, I'm afraid. Um, it's, if, if they did, then it's great art history. It's roughly the right period, <laughs> uh, etc. cetera. Uh, here it is being applied by Jack Pierce, the Greek-American genius uh, makeup designer. And that middle volume of Frankenstein, um, which is so subtle in the novel, the rejection and so on, and the, the, the creature turning nasty. By the way, he's called demon, he's called creature, he is occasionally called monster. Of course, in the movies, he's monster from the word go. Um, uh, and instead of the middle volume, you've got Fritz going to the University of Goldstadt to get a brain, and he picks up a brain, he drops it, as you know, he then picks up the one next to it, and because he's lexically challenged, shall we say, he doesn't read the label, and if he read the label, it would say, dysfunctio cerebri, abnormal brain, that's all you need to know about it. So he rushes back to the studio, uh, to the laboratory, and this is sewn into Karloff's cranium, and thereby hangs the tail. And the whole of the central volume of Frankenstein is covered in that one moment. It's a lot more simple than in the novel, but um, even if there was such a thing as an abnormal brain. This is interesting. It's a board produced, uh, which was circulated in Universal Studios in the early 1930s, before the movie was made, uh, with potential physiognomies of the creature. They weren't quite sure what he should look like. And, uh, and it, it was the devil to adapt. I mean, you know, um, five screenwriters, two directors, two creatures, Lugosi and Karloff, two endings, one where they all get blown up and one where they don't. And it, it was very, very difficult to adapt this story, and it took a long time. It was also difficult to visualize and it's interesting, at one point they toyed with the idea of a robot, bottom right, uh, middle uh, bottom, they wanted him to look like Charles Lawton, <laughs> which is rather strange. Freddy Krueger, bottom left, you know, wearing his brains on the outside. Um, alien, 
Neanderthal. So they went through all these different iterations of what the creature should look like and ended up with, um, with Boris Karloff. And this, I'm certain, they looked at. Uh, this is uh, Fusely's famous painting of the nightmare uh, of uh, uh, 1782, when it was first exhibited. And um, I won't go into it. I once actually curated an exhibition at the Tate of, around this painting. But there's the prone figure of the woman having a nightmare. On her chest is sitting the nightmare. Everyone thinks it was the horse. It wasn't. It's, he's the nightmare. And his vehicle is this blind horse coming through the curtains. So there's the nightmare sitting on her chest. And this is a still from Frankenstein and May Clark as uh, Frankenstein's wife, taken directly from Fusely's painting. And instead of the horse at the curtain, it's Karloff. Uh, and uh, it's interesting because a lot of the production designers in that era and cinematographers came from Northern Europe. They were emigres with the rise of Nazism. They came over to Hollywood and they brought with them a Northern European aesthetic of Edvard Munch, Fusely and all these paintings that were very common to them. They knew them very well. In Hollywood, they weren't very well known, but they were very well known to them. You keep getting references to all these Northern European Gothic paintings. So this is Fusely, and not content with that, they put it on the poster as well, at the bottom. So there's undoubtedly a connection when you're visualizing horror with uh, the nightmare. And then 1935, the sequel, as I've said, I do think it's a shame, Mary, to stop your story quite so suddenly. So off they go and make the Bride of Frankenstein with this wonderful makeup for Elsa Manchester, um, with a sort of flash of electricity through her hair and a shriek like a swan. And again, I'm fascinated by where they got that from. And it, again, I speculate, but in the mid-1920s, the portrait bust of Nefertiti, uh, ancient Egyptian bust um, of uh, 1340 BC, was unveiled in Berlin. Archaeologists had discovered it. It had a huge coverage in the newspapers with its conical hairdo and all the rest of it. And I think there may be a connection between the makeup uh, of um, Elsa Manchester as the Bride of Frankenstein and Nefertiti. Uh, again, I'm not saying that everyone was terribly into art history, but they had to get ideas quickly from the ether. You know, they had to work very, very fast, and uh, very often they use things that were in the news. And here's 1957, uh, The Curse of Frankenstein with Christopher Lee. Um, it was a very cheap film, £65,000, which even in 1957 wasn't uh, a very large budget. It was the first of seven Hammer Frankensteins. Uh, lots of innovations. The scientist got much older. Peter Cushing was 44 when he made it and became a rather sort of icy cold, Sardian sort of aristocrat. Um, a different sort of character. The film was basically about, if 1931 was about the creature, 1957 is about the scientist. It's about Frankenstein. In fact, the creature doesn't appear till halfway through, 45 minutes, and, um, and uh, doesn't appear nearly so much as, as you would expect. Um, it had much more gore than we were used to. It had a severed head. It had eyeballs. It had severed hands, which were quite an innovation, and the newspapers picked up on this. It was very period and this was a big innovation. It was set in Victorian times, with all the repressions of Victorian times. So you get a sort of sexual sub-theme of people bursting out of the uh, conventions of Victorian morality. And it was shown on more American screens than any British film had ever been shown before. It got saturation distribution in America. 
So it founded a dynasty. And as I say, there were seven Frankenstein films, one of which we're about to see, made by Hammer. Um, and um, the, the last film I'm really going to refer to in this was uh, Mary Shelley's 1994, Kenneth Branagh, as I say, makeup by Daniel Parker. One thing I've never quite understood is why the creature's scars don't get better. Um, the, the story takes place over two years, and a really creepy thing would be if by the end he looks quite normal, <laughs> because scars get better, you know. And, um, and in fact, I did a, 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 a Q&A on stage at the National Theatre in London where they had Frankenstein with Benedict Cumberbatch as the creature, you know, two or three years ago, Johnny Lee Miller as the scientist. And, um, uh, and I was talking to them, Danny Boyle was the director, and I said to him, you know, why, why did he say, God, I never thought of that, you know, he should have got better. I mean, he looks as though he's just come out of the operating theatre for the rest of the story. And there he is. In fact, he gets worse in, in, in this one. But anyway, Daniel Parker's makeup nominated for an Oscar. Um, and um, this is The Revenge of Frankenstein, which was the, the first um, sequel uh, made by Hammer. And it, um, I went to see it when I was uh, 12 years old. Um, I was let in the back by the manager. I was quite tall, 12 years old. And it scared the shit out. I'm sorry. It really scared me. And uh, I dreamt about it for, for months, actually. And, and the poster said, we dare you to forget it. And I really didn't. And you can argue that uh, th this, uh, you know, I've been trying to get it out of my system ever since, which is why I'm writing about it in Vegas. These, the exorcising the demon has taken a long time. But this was the second of the Frankensteins. And the one we're about to see is the one that was um, made in 1972, the last of the Hammer Frankensteins, and released in 1974. They had great difficulty by that stage finding distribution. It took two years to get it into distribution. And it was the last hurrah of the Hammer way of doing things. It was um, the last time Peter Cushing played the part of the Baron. It was the very last film that director Terence Fisher ever made. He was 70 at the time, and he'd made 29 films for Hammer, and this was the last one. And it was the last script by John Elder. And there's a feeling of the end of an era about it. As it went round in 1974, it competed with The Exorcist. I mean, a new world was beginning in horror cinema. Uh, and Hammer began to look a little bit out of date. Uh, it looked you know, more like sort of British costume drama. And I remember going to see it, actually, in summer 1974. And it took some tracking down because it didn't get very wide distribution. And I remember the excitement of seeing the opening sequence because it had all the familiar ingredients that you... It was like your favourite box of chocolates, you know, with Hammer. And, and it looked... It was ticking all the boxes. The lettering in red on a black background. Uh, the thunderous music by James Bernard. The gravedigger played by Patrick Troughton. Uh, busy at work, exhuming a corpse. You know, that was rather important. Uh, the overweight constable on night patrol. You had to have him as well. And it was like opening your favourite box of chocolates. But there were... A few things about the film that were shocking at the time. Uh, there was Charles Lloyd Pack as the music professor having the top of his head sliced off by Shane Bryant. We hadn't seen that before, uh, like opening a boiled egg. Um, there was David Prowse having his new hand sewn on as the creature, and that again was done in rather a physical way. Or, above all, when the creature is torn limb from limb by the shrieking inmates of the Carlsbad Asylum, uh, uh, which was actually trimmed by the British censor, that was going further than Hammer. They, they, they learned their lessons from The Exorcist and so on and were trying to move into that sort of territory. In the original script, which is in the BFI, there's even a scene where Dr. Simon Helder 
fed surplus body parts to some stray cats uh, after the, the creature had been torn limb from limb. But Terence Fisher drew the line at that and said he wasn't going to direct that, so it was removed. In any case, cats are expensive, and they couldn't afford cats. You know, by, uh, it, it was really a, a, not a budget line that they could call. Uh, when it was, the film's been called an epitaph for Hammer itself, the final flash of a great tradition, and as the American publicity put it characteristically, his brain came from a genius, his body came from a killer, his soul came from hell. You know, they, they can really, really do these things. Um, a few years ago, I chaired a, a discussion for the 40th anniversary of this film in 2014. And we had Shane Bryant, who's the Baron's assistant, David Prowse as the monster, and Madeline Smith as Angel or Sarah, the mute daughter uh, in the asylum. And one or two other members of cast, and three things came out of the discussion. One, that they all remember being crammed onto stage four at Elstree in this tiny set, and there was only one, basically, uh, and that, you know, they, they really yearned for some fresh air. Uh, it, it's very uh, set bound, this film. Secondly, David Prowse said the most extraordinary thing. Now, this is a man who appeared in Clockwork Orange and in Star Wars, and he said, Terence Fisher was a better director than either Stanley Kubrick or George Lucas. I thought, well, I'd never heard of that before. Anyway, <laughs> that was uh, something. And, um, and they all remembered how the Baron, having been out of conscience at the beginning of the cycle, by now is a pure sadist. He has no conscience whatsoever, and he's enjoying the mayhem that surrounds him. And at the end, where the body parts are flying over, he says, oh, I'm going to have to start again. And uh, so by now, Peter Cushing has evolved from... Uh, thoughtful scientist into sadist, and that they all remembered. And Peter Cushing himself said, uh, I love the movie, but why do they have to give me a hairpiece like Helen Hayes? Uh, which uh, uh, he has a rather unfortunate wig. Anyway, for those who haven't seen it before, you've got a, a treating store, the last hurrah of Hammer films, and uh, um, the, the end of a whole cycle of adaptations of Frankenstein. Thank you very much. The poet Shelley was Mary Godwin's boyfriend, and then they subsequently got married, and she became. They don't. Well, they don't. They don't refer to Mary Shelley by now at all. That's in Piccadilly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Have we time for any questions? One or two. One or two. Okay, I've overrun as usual. But anyway, never mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, any, any, any questions? Sorry, I've rather rattled through the story, but I mean, yes. Right. No, um, the line died out in the 1960s. Um, there was uh, descendants for 100 years, but uh, the direct line, there, is, there are members of the Shelley family, but the direct line died out in the 1950s. Um, and uh, it's a very sad story, you know, that, uh, um, as I say, you know, four, four children went to term, uh, three, one survived, and one miscarriage in Italy. Um, so, you know, she had a, Mary Shelley had a very, very rough time. And I should say one thing about Mary Shelley is that with the rise of interest in women literature, women and literature, and of course the rise of interest in Gothic, uh, which has become much more fashionable as an area of study, suddenly the focus has gone on to Frankenstein as a text, maybe for the first time ever. And suddenly, you know, there are many different versions available, rival editions of 1818 and 1831, both editions, some combining both. 
And it's, it's never been, had quite so much of a spotlight on it as a text as it has today for, for lots of quite complicated reasons, mainly because the Gothic is so fashionable. When I first started researching this in the British Library, the attendants in the library thought I was completely, this is in the late 60s, they thought I was completely bonkers. Yeah, everybody was studying Charles Dickens, D.H. Lawrence, the realist tradition in literature. And they'd bring these books in white gloves and sort of put them down as if they were rather sort of tainted. You surely want to read that one. Now, you go to the British Library, there is not a research student who isn't studying the Gothic. They all are studying aspects of Gothic. So it's completely changed for complicated reasons. And now it's central to literary studies. Hence the interest, I think, in Frankenstein. Any others? What did you say down there about Peter House? What did you the Plaza at Cinema, Piccadilly Circus, London. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead Hurry up. Uh, of all the films of Frankenstein, which is your personal favourite? My personal favourite is The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, because um, there's something about how gutsy it is. It, it's, um, it's frightening and it's camp which I think is quite important, because the novel has sort of camp elements in it. Um, and it's um, just a wonderful example of a certain style of acting. And it has a rather surprising number of references to the actual novel, particularly the scene where the creature finds the blind uh, peasant living in a hovel, you know, and learns how to speak uh, while talking to, to, to this uh, sort of pilgrim. Um, and I, I, I love The Bride of Frankenstein, actually, and I love the prologue, even though it's cheeky as hell. I just love the idea of, of slapping a prologue on the front like that. Um, uh, it's, um, and I think James Whale sort of understood this tradition. Um, if you, uh, a follow-up, I'm afraid Mel Brooks, <laughs> I'm very, very fond of Mel Brooks as well, because it's so affectionate that he loves the films that he's taking the mickey out of, which I quite like, actually. But, yeah. So one here, one there, yeah. In the middle, yeah. to Japanese versions of Frankenstein, of which there were many in the 60s, where he does wear a sort of toga or a loincloth. You're right. But I, I don't know whether they got it from the original or... No, I think they did, yeah. as you said, the primal sort of animalistic thing they got from yeah. the old versions. Yeah, yeah. I just want to know if your book, if your new book covers all the stuff we were talking about today, yeah. Yeah. and can I buy it? Where is it? Did you bring some of you? Copies in the shop. Okay, yeah. thank you. I'd be delighted to sign it if you'd like me oh, to. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yes, no, this is a kind of summary of the journey. Of the Excellent, book, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, there's a lot of books about Mary Shelley, and there are books about the text of Frankenstein, but what I was trying to do was to, to explore how it got into the cultural bloodstream, which is, for me, a very interesting question, you know, which wasn't necessarily through the text. And I, so that's the, that's the focus of it, like the talk, really, you know. Yeah. And all the pictures that are here are in the book. Excellent, yeah. okay, uh, thank you. Yeah. So one more final one? Yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. Um, the scenes your thesis was Harry Frankenstein slipped into the cultural bloodstream, but it seems uh, about 20 years plus since we've, we've had a, a 
telly, uh, if you take Penny Dreadful and the Frankenstein Chronicles, there's more Frankenstein on telly than there's ever been. It's kind of moved into Netflix land. Uh, no, there hasn't been a cinema. Um, as I say, Frankenstein in Ireland, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Somebody's got to make the movie about what happens to the creature when it lands on the beach uh, on the east coast of Ireland and strangles someone on the beach. Nobody's ever attempted anyway, but I throw that out as a, as a thought. Now you're right, in mainstream cinema, possibly it's played out because it's so cliched. It's thought, you know, in a way. But if I can just say, um, I, I, the reason I called the book The First 200 Years is that I do think that um, as a myth, and I think it's left the world of literature altogether to become a myth, um, it's quite flexible and fits all sorts of uh, different anxieties. For example, in the movies, if you look at mad science movies, in the 20s, it's gas. Everyone's very frightened of gas because of the First World War. So there's a lot of poison gas, death rays and stuff. In the 30s, it's medicine. In the 50s, it's nuclear. And today, it's biology. It's, bi it's um, genetic engineering, uh, genome cloning, and that sort of thing is the anxiety. And yet, the repertoire of how you express that anxiety has remained relatively constant. It's basically the same story. It's just that it's, you're hanging different anxieties on it. So today, you know, IVF, immediately everyone goes for the F word. Or uh, genetically modified crops, frankenfoods. And journalists immediately do this because it's there on the shelf. And you don't have to spend many column inches. You know, you, you, you've, you've expressed the anxiety in one word, really. So I think it will survive. Whether it'll still be quite the same story, I'm not sure. But as a metaphor and as a new creation myth for the era of biological engineering, I think there's another 200 years in it. Even if it's not in big budget movies, it'll, it'll turn up in other things. Somebody said if a six-year-old can wear it, uh, cuddle it, or squeeze it, Frankenstein has been on it. Uh, it's, it's on cereal packets, it's on children's knowledge. I mean, it's everywhere now. It's an international, it's a global brand, particularly the Karloff. And uh, so maybe it's moved out of mainstream cinema into other forms, but like the Western, it's there. It's in the culture, I think. Yeah. Anyway, it's your turn to make the movie. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.